Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm Dan Levesey, one of the hosts of the channel. Joining me today is Marlene Doubt, Associate Professor of English and Cultural Studies at Claremont Graduate University, and we're going to discuss her recent book, Tropics of Haiti, Race and the Literary History of the Haitian Revolution in the Atlantic World, 1789-1865. Marlene, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. Uh, well, I wanted to uh, kind of get started, as I usually do, talking about how you got into this project. And um, you write pretty candidly and openly about your own personal connections to Haiti, and I wonder if you could say a little bit about that and, and maybe how it led you to this consideration of the literary history of the Haitian Revolution. Sure. So I um, first became interested um, in Haiti through kind of studying um, the literary circles in the early 19th century in New Orleans. Um, and they kind of consistently led me back to Haiti. And um, my own family, as I write about in the book, is from Haiti. So I kind of had a natural um, interest in the topic for personal reasons and academic reasons. And um, I, of course, read my CLR James and I read um, many of the kind of uh, standard um, books uh, on the Haitian Revolution. And one thing that I noticed um, pretty early on was this idea of uh, light enlightenment literacy. Um, and so the idea that Toussaint Louverture or other enslaved Africans uh, read enlightenment philosophy, namely um, the Abbé Reynaud's uh, Histoire des Deux Andes, and that they became inspired to revolt and rebel against slavery. And so I thought, oh, I'll trace that idea um, in literature and just sort of see you know, where it started and where it leads to. Um, but one of the things that I found when I began to do archival research, um, first looking at kind of rare manuscripts in the Bibliothèque Nationale, um, was that that narrative was there, but it appeared to have become really popular later, that Enlightenment literacy narrative. Um, there were other narratives that seemed to be competing with it and really kind of pushing it out. So if the Enlightenment literacy narrative was ultimately about freedom, um, from from slavery, um, the mulatto vengeance narrative was really about racially uh, racial motivations for the Haitian Revolution, um, and namely the idea that particularly people of quote unquote mixed race or people who had some kind of hybrid status, a, a former slave who's now free, um, that they were motivated by revenge to rebel, and that was very interesting to me because it kept surfacing over and over again continuously and was actually sort of much more resonant and popular than that enlightenment, enlightenment literacy narrative. And so that's really kind of what um, encouraged me uh, to continue to find more of these narratives and to pursue this line of inquiry, not, um, not just uh, in um, literature as such, but in a much in literature in a more broad way of historiography and pamphlets and newspapers, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I really like that you have this great back and forth between a kind of historical perspective and the literary perspective and how they join up, and, and, and they're really integrated in such a, a great way. Um, and, and I want to get to those issues around uh, the mulatto vengeance narrative, um, but it might be worth considering just a little bit 
uh, some of the scholarly conversations that you're considering, because I think that they help frame it pretty well. Um, and so you're, you're engaged in a couple of pretty important conversations at once. Um, the first is, is sort of how scholars of the Haitian Revolution have addressed and, and to some degree uh, still address the subject of racial dynamics in the country. And then second, how novelists and, and writers of fiction represented it uh, in the early decades of Haiti's history. Um, if you could just kind of give us a sense of, of uh, what's happened until recently, at least, what was the scholarly narrative around race in the revolution? I think until recently, the scholarly narrative has really been that there were three broadly construed uh, groups of people um, involved in the Haitian Revolution. So that there were whites, uh, in quotation marks, there were blacks um, who were, you know, neg or slaves, um, and that there were mulattoes, often just interchangeably used with three people of color. And um, the interesting thing is, is that when you look at the literature of the Haitian Revolution, again, broadly conceived, you find that people aren't nearly as certain about what those terms meant as we appear to be today in our scholarship. And so um, one of the things I say is that race has not really been examined in the history of the Haitian Revolution because we've taken those very racial categories for granted. And so instead of interrogating what is the meaning of being, quote unquote, negre or mulatre or gens de couleur, um, instead of really interrogating and pushing those terms and seeing not only where they came from, but really how they were used, how they changed, how a person could be called one in one context and called another in a different context. Um, we've, it seems to me sort of just assumed that that's the vocabulary that we have and therefore that's the vocabulary that we should use. Um, whereas uh, one of the things that I'm arguing is, is not that we should adopt a colorblind perspective to the Haitian Revolution and, and simply say, well, race didn't matter, was really, is really much more what I'm saying, that there's a, there was a confusion about not only how much race or color did matter, but what race and color, what, what it was, and who was living in a race body and who wasn't. And um, even though now we can say, of course, well, we all live in raced bodies, there's a way in which when you read uh, the literature of the Haitian Revolution, that really uh, there's a focus on, quote unquote, mulattoes and Negroes and what they are doing to pursue these kind of vengeful ends because of their race. And so the white participants in the revolution are appear a lot of times merely as defendants. Um, they are not racially motivated. They are defending themselves from those who are. And so this is what I really wanted to kind of pursue as a line of inquiry and find out where did it come from and what are some of the constituent elements that made it so popular and why did it stay alive? And then related to that, why is this still a really resonant narrative in our scholarship today, even though we have so much work on critical race theory um, that would seem to, you know, encourage us to really dismantle and deconstruct those terms in the first place. Why has that not been done was one of the questions I was asking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and if it, towards the end, I want to come back to that issue of why that's still such a prominent part of the discussion around the Haitian Revolution, because I think that's a, uh, that certainly seems to be the case in the way a lot of people write about it. Um, but let's kind of go into the, the major subjects that you tackle here, particularly in terms of the tropes that you find um, in the discussions, both kind of on the political side of of reactions to the Haitian Revolution, and then um, ongoing into the literary representations throughout the, the late 18th and the early 19th century. And one of the things, I was really amazed at the sheer number of pamphlet, pamphlets and plays and novels that, that come out of that. There's well over 100, and, and so it, there's just really, it seems to be a fertile ground for people to want to consider uh, these issues. Um, and you, you 
dissect a number of, of major themes. And the first one is this idea of, of uh, the monstrous hybrid or, or the, the general idea of monstrous hybridity. Um, if you could just maybe spend a few minutes explaining uh, what that is and then uh, how it applies to Haiti and, and even beyond just the idea of race mixing, how it gets kind of uh, to become this really important trope about people's understanding of that nation. Yeah, I mean, in in a certain sense, monstrous hybridity could be considered the most important of the tropes in the sense that it that it kind of shapes all of the other tropes. And by that, I mean that um, monstrous hybridity is much less about actual status of being a person of mixed race and more about framing. So using a language that was uh, that was developed in what I call pseudoscientific debates about race. Um, in the early modern world and using that language to describe their contemporaries, the contemporaries of the Haitian Revolution. Um, And what emerges is a a sense of incongruity, a sense of vengeance, a sense of really malicious uh, personality elements clashing with other personality elements that usually came from either pure whiteness or pure blackness, but that when merged together created this sort of very vengeful, very irate behavior. Um, and it's interesting because as you were sort of alluding to there, um, eventually this discourse that came out of, you know, what happens when whites and blacks, uh, quote unquote, procreate together, um, became attached to people who would not ordinarily be considered hybrid in some way. Uh, for example, Jean-Jacques Dessalines, I'd say, is, you know, probably one of the most, um, you know, immediate people who comes to mind when I think of monstrous hybridity that, as it was written about in this discourse. He's the homme tigre, a tiger man. He um, is a, he's barely human and he wants to, he's almost cannibalistic in these narratives. And, um, and so in that sense, um, it, it actually helps to shape the, the other tropes because we have to defend, depend first on something, and, and that something becomes uh, black savagery, which ends up conjoining together with white civilization. And it is that those sort of stereotypes merging together that bring us the tropology um, that allows for vengeance to really kind of shine through in, in a lot of these narratives. Um, vengeance particularly attached to people who could not be described as fully European or fully African, um, either because of their quote-unquote blood or because of their upbringing. Uh, so Toussaint Louverture is another person who gets really codified um, both in the past and in the present, actually, in terms of his status of as being a hybrid. And of course, in the 18th and 19th century, this is this is much more monstrous maybe than it would seem in um, contemporary discourse where sometimes hybridity is celebrated. And is that a particularly new, not invention, but a kind of a, a, a emerging trope that is somewhat unique to, to Haiti? Does it draw on some maybe European or even African precedents? I mean, you're largely dealing with a lot of authors who come from a European background. Um, but, but is that something that kind of develops in a unique fashion in Haiti? I would say, you know, so one of the things I say is that, you know, monstrous hybridity wasn't the trope didn't kind of it wasn't created by the discourse about the Haitian Revolution. So it wasn't created by authors like Moho de Saint-Marie. Really, they kind of developed the trope and helped to attach it to the Haitian Revolution where it gained its present resonance. And so they made it popular. So travel writers uh, wrote about monstrous hybridity in Africa, for example, Edward Long, others, they, they wrote about what happened when quote-unquote white civilization met Negro savagery or African savagery. They wrote about what they thought 
literally happened when people would uh, racially mix, so to speak. Um, and when that language, people like Laban, Nicholson, and all these kind of early modern travel writers to the French Caribbean in particular, um, when that language became co-opted to discuss the Haitian Revolution, it really turned into a way to um, provide blame and also really to absolve the French colonists um, for any kind of cruelties that were performed under slavery, um, which was really to say that, you see, we had to treat them so severely because look what happens when you let up for a moment. And it became a way to blame the free people of color for that, that it was their desire to have too much. It was them being ungrateful. And this is people like um, Malouet and, and others with that their desire uh, for freedom um, was really not um, was really leading the slaves, the enslaved Africans uh, to want to pursue freedom also. And so it becomes attached to uh, the Haitian Revolution, but it doesn't necessarily begin there, I would say. Mm-hmm. Well, and this might be a good uh, spot to talk about the second major trope, uh, not, not to kind of move on from that, because I think that they're, they're all sort of interlinked. But um, the, the, major, the second major trope you talk about is this idea of mulatto or mulatto vengeance. Um, which is pretty recurrent throughout the whole uh, period of the Haitian Revolution and on into the 19th century. Um, and there's a sort of famous case of a man named Vincent Auger who comes to back from France to Saint-Domingue and has this coup. And uh, you sort of talk about how the, there's a lot of blame put on onto him. And, and, and it's not necessarily the beginning of this idea of mulatto vengeance, but that um, this becomes this very prominent strain in considerations of why this revolution occurs. Um, and so there's a lot to kind of parse out of this idea of mulatto vengeance. And so um, what is sort of at the heart of this idea that people of mixed ancestry are just inherently looking out for revenge and uh, uh, sort of almost this, uh, well, not almost, but a, a patricidal rage against their parents? Yeah, I mean, that was one of the things that really struck me when I first began to see the pattern of sort of mulatto vengeance up against Enlightenment literacy uh, was all of the patricide. And so the more I began to kind of study how revolutions are written about, I thought, okay, well, patricidal narratives, parasitical narratives become a part of the American Revolution and the French Revolution. But it didn't seem to be quite as literal. It seemed very metaphorical, like, oh, we're overthrowing England or um, we need to get rid of the king and um, his patriarchal authority. But in the Haitian Revolution, people really seem to actually be suggesting, if not outright arguing, um, that children were killing their parents and vice versa. And that there was all kinds of infanticide um, and there was matricide and all of these things that um, really were unthinkable to people. So we talk about the Haitian Revolution as being unthinkable. But I think what was very unthinkable to people was that parents and children would not even just be politically on opposite sides, but wouldn't necessarily know that there was kind of all of this duplicity involved that you wouldn't necessarily be able to know and that you might accidentally kill your own parent which is, you know, what uh, one character in Victor Hugo's Guga Chargal sort of argues and remonstrates against. Like, make sure you just, if you're going to do it, don't do it yourself. And when I kept seeing that this was coming up over and over again, I, I wanted to kind of pursue it and find out, you know, what was it that made the Haitian Revolution appear to actually pit people living in the same house um, against one another? And, and I think part of it has to do with, um, you know, there were... 
we tend to think, uh, at least in terms of sort of um, questions that I usually get asked, people say, but it seems like there was a lot of mulatto exceptionalism going around. So in African-American discourse, the trope of the tragic mulatto, for example, um, is sort of like this light-skinned woman who is supposedly so beautiful um, that her life is in peril because, you know, white slaveholders can't uh, control their sexual desires for her. And she's usually extremely intelligent and, you know, all of these things that go along with this kind of tropology. But what we find in the Haitian Revolution is much more ambivalence about these people who are of mixed race, that um, they are not enchanting figures a lot of times. They are figures of destruction. And I think that it's, of course, a way to um, make a clearer separation between whiteness and blackness to suggest that it is so dangerous uh, to racially mix that you could be creating a family member, a child who might one day come and kill you in your sleep. Um, and I think that that has to have, at an affective level, um, affected people's consciousness of the revolution, their ability to kind of go about their daily lives and their treatment of their own slaves. When I really sort of get down to think about it, um, that if you were living with that belief in your mind, you know, how would that make you behave? And um, and so I think it was a way it was a measure of control. It was a way to put deeper controls uh, onto colonial society and try to harness the threat of uh, the Haitian Revolution, the threat of slave rebellion and and uh, the threat that people that the people in the colony who were free in general would try to get independence from France. Um, so. Is it also part of the maybe just a general confusion that certain authors have around what it is to be of mixed ancestry? And, you know, Edward Long very famously thinks that people of mixed descent are, are sterile, yeah. right, that they're they're essentially mules and so they can't reproduce. And, and, and uh, I think there's a similar dis, uh, discourse in the. Uh, the French Atlantic as well. So is part of this maybe just a general uncertainty about what is the place of these individuals? Uh, what is their biology even? Um, is Are they a threat to families? What do you think is, are some of the central problems that they pose beyond just, well, they're not black, they're not white in their minds. Um, what are some of the other problems that people of mixed descent pose? I think they posed, I mean, they posed serious questions about freedom, right? Um, can you hold other human beings in bondage, right? Because, so one of the things that I, I think is that, you know, the Edward Longs and the Moho de Saint-Marie's, people who spent a lot of time in the colonies, that they really knew that what they were writing was not true. And so one of the things I trace for Moho de Saint-Marie is, all of those little moments of ambivalence in which he says, basically, he gives a caveat, like, you really shouldn't take this too seriously. So contrary to Edward Long, Moreau de Saint-Marie thinks that um, that after the first instance of, uh, you know, racial mixing, miscegenation, to use a ahistorical term for, for his time period, uh, but that after that first instance, um, which would result in a kind of regeneration, that degeneration would occur. So the closer and closer that a person with, of African descent um, became to came to looking like a European or to the farther away they got from that quote unquote bloodline, that um, the more kind of sterile the person would get, the more sallow and weak the person would get. And I, I think to myself, he being a father of at least one child of mixed race and then grandchildren of mixed race, has to know that this narrative, that this is not 
true, that this is not correct. So I ask then, well, what what is it serving? Well, it's serving one of his broader purposes, which is to discourage racial mixing, because his pamphlets that he was publishing, particularly in the 1780s and the 1790s, were all about uh, the threat that people of mixed race and really free people of color posed in particular. And so you can really see there's a fear in as much as he is involved with uh, with people of color uh, sexually and it, living with a free woman of color and having a child with her and then raising that child to be white with his new wife. Even with all of that, there is still a distinct fear. There is an ambivalence and there is also a desire to control the colony there's a, to control the uh, which is precisely what we learn i think by reading the works of someone like doris garraway in the libertine colony and and uh john garrigus in before haiti which is really how much people wanted to control um the way that the population would grow in in saint-domingue but one of the things that i was really interested in was the way that those controls would make people feel the way that they would make someone like Mohu de Saint-Marie feel, but also, perhaps more importantly, the way they made enslaved Africans, particularly enslaved African women, feel, and free women of color, to know that they are being constantly stereotyped in this way, and the acute ways in which these women were written about as having some sense that those stereotypes and that tropology was being attached to them, and the, these women wanting to, or attempting to combat it knowing how dangerous it was, what it meant for them, that it was not just, oh, people will think of you in a certain way, but that it would have life or death uh, repercussions. Mm -hmm. That's actually a great segue into one of the the later sections, which is uh, talking about the idea of the female temptress. And um, I I really liked uh, the way you kind of discussed that it's important to bring women back into discussions around um, revolution and, and especially enslaved revolution. And, um, I think there's been some slow work starting to be put forward recently on that question. Um, so, uh, how does this idea of the, the temptress of color, um, which, you know, there's a lot of colonial discourses around, uh, women as temptresses, um, but how does it fit into the particular narrative that you're finding in the Haitian Revolution? Um, because I, I think it is somewhat unique to, to Haiti. Yes, so um, you're absolutely right that, I mean, even that sort of temptress narrative is attached to the tragic Lada. I mean, she's so beautiful that she tempts her looks alone, supposedly tempts uh, these uh, enslavers to want to come and rape her, essentially, right, or seduce her in some way. Um, But one of the things I noticed uh, in reading this, the literature of the Haitian Revolution was that if you look at the tropical temptress uh, through the eyes of these largely male writers um, and you sort of believe in their accounts, then, yes, you get this idea of the tropical temptress. And even if you say it's a stereotype and all of that, that this is what you are sort of this is the representation you have. But one of the things I suggest is that if you look at it from the opposite perspective, OK, you're talking about a woman of color who poisons her master. Well, of course, the. The, the columnist writing about this thinks that this is a terrible thing and writes about the treachery of this woman. But from the other perspective, I say this is a woman being defiant. This is a woman rebelling author- against authority. And that rebellion against authority um, does not always operate in ways that would necessarily jive with protect scholars' uh, current perceptions of, of uh, the Haitian Revolution. For example, I talk about this resonant narrative of Jean-Jacques Dessalines' wife, 
Marie-Claire Heureuse and how she supposedly, in all these narratives, was saving white colonists, especially women and children, from the mandates of her husband to either exterminate or expel them from the island. And is that betrayal or is or is this uh, some kind of, you know, revolutionary behavior? And depending upon the narrative in which you find this account, she's this benevolent woman uh, brought to the island by God to, to perform these um, this kind of sanctimonious office, or is she betraying her husband? Um, and when I see that she's considered a hero in Haiti today, that there's La Maison de Marie-Claire Heureuse uh, uh, in Haiti to this day, I say that, you know, perhaps we need to change the way that we think about what is heroic during the Haitian Revolution, um, and particularly when it comes to women. And so there are writings about Cécile Fatima and uh, a few other uh, women revolutionaries who engaged in sort of armed combat. But I think that we've tended to shy away from the behaviors that are not clear to us, what what sort of ideology the person engaged in the behavior um, was, you know, shared. So was Marie-Claire Heureuse, uh, was she uh, saving whites because she thought that Desalines was wrong? Um, is it some sort of sympathetic identification? What were her motives? And that's what I mean when I say I'm much more interested in kind of thinking about how people who were usually left out of the narrative, how did they feel? So not simply what they did and how we can read that, but how can we access their how they felt about it, how it affected them, um, how a person could be ideologically in favor of the revolution but not want to see people they consider to be innocent murdered. Um, and I think that these are questions we must continue um, to answer, especially in you know sort of our own political climate where people kind of throw the word, I think, revolutionary and revolution and out uh, about without um, really kind of interrogating, well, what does it, what does that mean to have a revolution? It's really a bloody, messy affair. And uh, a lot of the actors of the revolution, including Toussaint Louverture, in the way that he's written about, understood this, and they really had a hard time in thinking about a revolution that involved indiscriminate violence. And I think we should all have a, a hard time with indiscriminate violence. So I think those are important people to continue to study and try to access their motives and feelings and and, uh, and, and not just, you know, how we can look at their behaviors and then sort of interpret that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I hate to maybe go back because you, you've discussed it a little bit, but um, maybe if you could talk about kind of how those links around the, uh, the discourse around uh, the temptress and and how that doesn't necessarily sync up well with the women themselves. Um, but then also how this, this idea of the tragic mulata um, kind of figures into that and, and how those, those two interact and this idea of giving some aspect of maybe strange agency to women, but at the same time taking it away with this idea of, of uh, individuals who are bound to, to lead to disaster or um, self-harm or, or all sorts of things of, of tragedy. Yeah, and I mean, the tragic mulata is sort of, so, you know, one of the things I say is that there were certain, at certain points in writing this book, it was really difficult to read all of these narratives over and over again. And so, you know, I apologize for continuing to bring up the issue of sexual violence, but it was, it's such a feature of these narratives. And the tragic mulata really is a figure who cannot be understood without thinking about sexual violence, sexual assault and rape, because this is, this determines most of the time how she came into being. 
um, and also the threat that she constantly feels. So a lot of the colonists write about the threat that these women would pose. Um, also, someone like Leonora Sanse writes about the threat that these women of mixed race uh, would pose to white families. But, I mean, are we really thinking about the sort of fear, um, the, the threat that these women felt? Um, and, you know, Sarah Johnson's book, The Fear of French Negroes, uh, is, is really sort of helpful in that regard in terms of she's thinking about what did enslaved Africans feel? What kind of fear did they feel? Right. And so I simply say, even to the free woman of color, what was her daily sort of threat level? You know, um, what what was she experiencing and how is her behavior being read um, and in terms of not in terms of self-defense uh, a lot of times, but really kind of like self-immolation, but this suicide that gets attached, attached to tragic mulattas is a suicide that's better than life. And so this is one of the reasons why I think, you know, is the tragic mulatta that tragic? When we read a, a, along the grain of the narrative, sure, but when we think about what kind of life uh, is she escaping, then the other face of that is, is a face of rebellion and is a face of resistance, and that was really you know, sort of what I'm interested in is, is not continuing to kind of pursue, you know, because there's a way in which you could trace the tragic mulatta throughout the literature of the Haitian Revolution and show all the ways in which it neatly fits into that narrative. But I'm also interested in how we can sort of think beyond that narrative to get to access other feelings, other experiences, other affective responses that are not necessarily served by thinking about the tragic mulatta as a stable figure that always appears in the same way, in the same formula, that maybe there are different formulas and maybe that, that those different formulations have something to tell us not only about representation, but really about uh, what was what the meaning of race was to people who were writing about it and people who were living it, people who were living in those uh, raced bodies. And, and do you think ultimately that that the aspect or the, the, the thought of the trash mulata and the, the very real sexual violence that was going on. Is that in some ways maybe the one of the essential hearts of this narrative around vengeance? And, and is that why perhaps there's this um, skewed sense about what the motivations of mixed race people are because of sort of this inherent understanding of, of the origins of this community? I, I think so, because, you know, so one of the things that, that really struck me about Victor Sejour's narrative in, in Le Moulatre was how all this entire black family, this entire family of people of color, that it was the predominance of sexual assault. This entire family came to be because of sexual assault. And this entire family was dismantled because of sexual assault. Right. And um, what like what would that generate from a generational? So when in the souls of black folks, W.E.B. Du Bois says that it was an evil omen to see his child who had two black parents, two parents of color, born with, you know, these kind of blue specks in his eyes and golden hair. Because to Du Bois, that, that called forth the history of rape and sexual violence against women of color uh, during slavery. And he knew that the only way for those genetic traits to be present in his child was for there to have been some kind of interracial mixing. And there's a sense in which, you know, um, all the sexual uh, relationships on a plantation have to be viewed in the realm of sexual assault because I, 
what does what does consent mean in those circumstances? And this is precisely the kind of conversation that is really uh, coming forward in the public eye around uh, Sally Hemings and Thomas Jefferson. And, you know, people want to believe this is a love affair. But what does love look like between an enslaved person and a master? I mean, it can only be a perverse love if love exists at all in that if, if love, if that is even a proper word that one could use, it could only be perverse. It could only be malicious. Um, and so and I think that this is one of the real tragedies of the tragic mulatto and the tragic mulatta is that this person is almost always figured to be either in fact or sort of metaphorically the result of a violent sexual relationship. And what is that? What is the legacy? And so that's why I also really wanted to look at Emeric Bergeau's Stella, that first Haitian novel, because we really see what unfolds when you build a family based on such violence and the violence that you can sort of pass down through uh, your children, just like you pass down those genetic traits, um, which is also a feature of much later sort of um, allusions to the Haitian Revolution, William Faulkner's Absalom, Absalom, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, these are all such great points. And, and um, you know, for the listeners, it's such a rich book, and I'm not doing justice to all the detailed analysis of the uh, the literally like dozens and dozens of pamphlets and novels. Um, so I apologize for just kind of speeding through. And, and But I, I want to get at uh, sort of the last section of the book, which is really important and I, and I think figures into the whole scope of how many people have viewed the revolution um, kind of since its founding, or not since its founding, but since the, the 19th century, I should say. Um, and that is this idea of the colored historian or the, the mulatto legend of history. Um, and what you're, you're grappling with the way that scholars treat 19th century portrayals um, of the Haitian Revolution. And so could you just kind of sketch out what you mean by the colored historian or the mulatto legend of history? And then we can kind of talk about its influence. Sure. So, um, you know, when I again, first began to study the Haitian Revolution, of course, one of the first um, or, or Haitian literature, I should say, one of the first books that I knew I needed to read was uh, David Nichols from Desalines to Duvalier. And I was really struck by you know, his observations of the way in which 19th century Haitian quote-unquote racial or color politics um, have affected what was in his day in the 1970s present-day contemporary Haitian society. But there's a chapter that sort of always unsettled me, and it was the chapter on the mulatto legend of history, and really the argument there is that the idea that you could kind of predict or determine for the most part, because he has a lot of caveats in there, um, for the most part, you could predict or determine the narrative that would emerge from a historian's writing, a Haitian historian's writing, based on their skin color. And so I tried to think about how could, like, could we make this argument about any other place in the world? Like, could we make this argument about the United States? Like, well, white historians almost always say this. Black historians almost always say that. And when, you know, people would say, but it's Haiti, it's not the U.S. And that felt too much like Haitian exceptionalism to me. So I decided that even though I'm going to have to read all these tombs from Thomas Madjou and Beauborin Ardouin and Joseph Serémy, these historians who are really prolific, that in order to really see if, you know, is there any teeth to this argument that we really need to actually look through the representation, read those works, not just as sources and great sources they are, but read them as narrative, as literature, as a part of the literary history of Haiti and of the Haitian Revolution, so therefore of the Atlantic world. And what I found was particularly in Saint-Rémy's case that 
it, uh, that there was an idea that because he was a quote unquote mulatto, a free person of color, a descendant of the free people of color, I should say, that he was going to put forth a certain narrative. And the narrative that I find in his works is ambivalent. One thing he's sure about is that one thing that Sarimi is sure about is that race didn't determine who would be loyal to whom during the Haitian Revolution. And he really wants us to know that. And I think this, uh, this has unsettled a lot of historians. And I think that is why he became the focus of a lot of these narratives about the mulatto legend of history. And the reason I call it the colored historian is because um, this is a sort of a lithograph that preceded one of William Wells Brown's works, and he was called um, the colored historian. But I just thought that it was so apt, right? So the, the historian is of color. This is posing a problem for many 19th century historians like John Beard um, and James Redpath, who are really adamant that this color is going to color the person's interpretation of history, but without sort of any kind of reflexivity that their own color could then be coloring or, or <laughs> shaping their interpretation of Haitian history. And so, again, just sort of trying to get at why it is important for someone to present Haitian history in this way. And so I always say that, you know, it's undeniable to look at Haitian society today and, of course, in Nichols' day and to say there's no, quote unquote, racial prejudices or color prejudices. But it seems to me that he used a model. He, he worked backwards, perhaps, went from contemporary society and then help, used that to help him explain 19th century Haitian society. And I don't think we were quite there yet. I think that those color prejudices were very performative. We can see them ardently uh, sort of being worked at by people like Gobineau and Alexandre Bonneau, who were adamant, and Thomas Carlyle even, who were adamant that blacks and mulattoes could never live together in peace, that they must naturally hate one another. And so that's one of the things that I'm really sort of contesting in the book is, why should we think that that enmity is natural? Why would that enmity be natural? And the only thing that I can think of is that these um, white British and European and French historians of the period, their enmity felt natural to them, their enmity toward people of color. And they assumed that the closer someone was to whiteness, to being like them, that they that that person would share the same ideas about race. What they didn't understand about Haitians was that Joseph Saint-Rémy considered himself African and considered himself black. And so sometimes he wrote about himself and using the term Jean de couleur. Sometimes he said he had a brown face. Another time he said he had a front nègre, a negro kind of face or forehead, literally. Um, that, but that's the part I think that the 19th century historians missed is that the mulattoes didn't consider themselves to be white. They, they pretty much understood that this, uh, quote unquote, taint of the tar brush, to quote one author, was really going to shape how people viewed them from a, the standpoint of color and from the standpoint of race. Um, so that's really kind of what I wanted to explore was this shift in the way that 19th century historians wrote about and thought about race and how it led us to this present moment of believing um, in, in believing in the idea that a person's skin color really did was the determining factor of it that made them write about Haitian history in a certain manner. Well, and you really showed that uh, when you kind of analyze the entirety of these, you know, quote unquote, colored historians works, they're very, they're, it's really tough to assign any kind of racial identity to them or that they are, are trying to drive racial wedges in the history of Haiti. Um, so is it, do you think that it's because uh, the authors that are interpreting them, not just in the 19th century, but even in the 20th century, uh, are coming at it from a place of, of a kind of a fear about 
the America's enslaved population and what that's going to do? Um, or is it an attempt to uh, try to offer an explanation as to why they believe Haiti is a failed state? What do you, what do you think is sort of the reflective? I mean, I know I'm kind of asking you to, to go from the, the perspective of the outsiders, which is not the, the uh, focus of this book, but, but why do you think that takes on such urgency? Is it because this idea of a, a failed state, is it because of um, non-Haitians' concerns about their own populations of color? Yeah, and so um, in part four of the book where, is, where the three chapters are that deal with the colored historian, you know, so one of the things I say is that I, I used um, James Redpath and John Beard and, and Saint-Rémy and uh, Victor Chelcher to a certain extent precisely because there isn't an easy answer to figure out, you know, why. Whereas with someone like Alexandre Bonneau or certainly Gobineau, or even Carlisle, that there are, there are distinct reasons, or Josiah Knott, right? There are distinct reasons that these pro-slavery propagandists want to put forward this uh, idea of Haiti, of blacks and mulattoes in, in distinct enmity with one another forever, naturally, and the vengeance that they both feel supposedly towards whites, right? That this is serving a narrative of anti-miscegenation. We must keep an enslaved population in check. We must make sure that we don't have too many emancipated or free people of color hanging around. It's really clear in those narratives. But the people that I'm really uh, sort of uh, looking at in depth in part four are abolitionists for the most part. They're anti-slavery activists. They're people who are dismantling race. They call themselves friends to Haiti, friends to the Negroes, and yet how is it that, you know, and I quote Anne Laura Stoller, that racism is serving so many of the same, so many different ends at the same time. And I, that is a piece that is really difficult to know. Is it because they were copying from prior authors whose works were much more adamantly, uh, you know, sort of ideological in favor of slavery, in favor of colonialism? Is that the reason why? I mean, that certainly seems to be part of the issue with someone like William Wells Brown's works, because I was so surprised to see him um, copy the passages from Beard that were really kind of malicious passages about people of color. And the confusion, you can really see the confused elements in his work when in one passage he sort of demonizes mulattoes, quote unquote, and in another passage he sort of says that they were naturally superior and they were, they should have been the people to lead enslaved Africans to freedom. And so you sort of ask yourself, well, which is it? Are they naturally malicious and they hate, you know, uh, all people who are, quote, who are not of mixed race? Or are they the ones who were of superior talents, I believe is the exact phrase, and should have led enslaved Africans to freedom? And how he gets there is copying certain elements from Beard, who had copied from people like Chelcher and even Saint-Rémy. So, um, so I think that's one answer is that in the works that are more ambivalent, confused ideas of race appear is that there was a lot of copying going on. There was a lot of influence going on. Um, but I think the other thing is that people generally seem to have been, if the literature of the Haitian Revolution is any indication, generally seem to have been pretty wary of quote unquote miscegenation. And I think it occasioned all kinds of questions for them about family inheritance, um, about uh national identity, um, so questions beyond racial identity, um, th that it really seemed to unsettle them uh, on multiple levels, because we find uh, 
so much ambivalence about, well, will these people be able to say they're part of the family and come and, you know, have a lawsuit against us and take our property? And I mean, there were really practical concerns that people who are writing about the Haitian Revolution, narrating it, even in fictional form, seem to suggest were on the minds of people. So not just about keeping bloodlines pure, although that was important to them as well, but also like what practically will happen uh, if racial mixing continues to be a feature of this colony and of life in a in a colony where there's slavery or in a land such as the United States where there's, you know, domestic slavery. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, uh, not to kind of cut this short, but I, I just wonder, because you, you touched on it very briefly at the end, but but to what degree are these narratives still kind of in play, um, either in Haiti itself or, or just in the language that people use when they're talking about Haiti? You have this very evocative passage at the very end, you know, addressing sort of the way people respond to the earthquake in 2010 and, and how in some ways these these ideas haven't quite died out. So so what do you see as the legacy of this and how does it maybe fit into a major narrative you talk about, which is Haitian exceptionalism? Yes, I mean, that was one of the striking things. I, and I always say, you know, I had to keep the introduction short because I it was almost like you, you can't go on anymore. Because <laughs> in when I found the narratives in the 20th century um, and that they were still continuing, it, it was like it's too much, right? Because, uh, you know, sort of if you could just leave it in the past and show that the way forward was better somehow or, or even remarkably different. Um, but what I found was that especially monstrous hybridity just prevails in our contemporary media, that um, Haiti is a place where revenge is on the mind of of, uh, contemporary citizens as well as politicians, Um, that Haitians are in some way to blame for their current situation. Um, Everyday Haitians, I don't mean the Haitian government, I mean ordinary Haitians, that there's like a legacy of the Haitian revolution that lives on through them. And a legacy of the Haitian Revolution that continues to call forth ideas about vengeance. So, of course, I talk about Pat Robertson's infamous comments and David Brooks' infamous comments in the wake of of the earthquake. Um, and that when I found that, you know, when Haiti had another earthquake in the 19th century that struck Cataïsia, that there were still these, you know, narratives of blame. That later in the 19th century, Spencer St. John continued to call forth mulatto vengeance and monstrous hybridity, and also to continue to blame the Haitian people for various natural disasters that had struck the island of Hispaniola and had particularly affected the part that is Haiti. And um, and so I, I, I do continue to find um, those narratives pretty much, you know, whenever Haiti is um, evoked as, you know, not being important or only being important because of the threat. And so when Aristide, for example, uh, there was a coup d'etat in 2004, and this uh, CNN broadcast said, you know, Haiti is not really strategically important, uh, but it is close by. And so Haiti is still a threat. And w- w- why is that? You know, an article in the Miami Herald, you know, a land where justice can mean revenge, or they have, a, you know, a French patois, mixed of languages, like an imperfect understanding even of what Haitian Creole is, that it must be part of the problem. And I think in uh, there's a really poignant scene in Jonathan Demis, the agronomist, about uh, the radio personality Jean Dominique, where he said, where um, uh, the the filmmaker says, you know, here are the ambassadors basically to Haiti from the United States and various different officials, and they are listening to Aristide speaking Creole, and they are disapproving of the fact that he is speaking in Creole, um, that he's inciting them to rebellion, that this is a language of rebellion, um, and this is a language that is a Creole 
it's um, a mix. And so it kind of becomes this really apt metaphor that just even using that language means that you are, quote unquote, hybrid people uh, sort of somehow destined for or more open to revenge in your society as being sort of the dominant mode of, of um, political organization and, and even just personality of, of politicians in general. Well, it's such a great examination of a really long history of, of Haiti and, and the, the debates both past and present around how people discuss it and how Haitians themselves uh, feel in, in opposing ways. Um, uh, just before we, we leave, I, just, I wonder if you could talk about what you're working on next and uh, if you're kind of jumping onto a new territory or, or building off of this study. Yeah, so I'm both um, jumping into new territory and building, I would say. <laughs> so uh, one, the sort of most immediate project that comes to mind is the Anthology of Haitian Revolutionary Fictions, which is um, based on uh, the website that I created for Tropics of Haiti in order to provide a bibliography that could be accessible to everyone, whether or not they have the book or have access to the book, of uh, some of the distinctly fictional works of the Haitian Revolution. Um, because it seemed to me that a lot of the historical works um, might be more well-known, uh, aside from the pamphlets and newspaper articles, but that the fictional works, um, there are many more than just the really famous works like by Lamartine or Hugo or Bergeot or Faubert that there were many more. Um, and so that will be both a kind of combination of a website and a printed anthology with excerpts and translation that people can use, hopefully in the classroom or use to kind of think about um, the role of fiction in, in shaping our understanding of the Haitian Revolution. And then I'm continuing to work on um, this uh, sort of idea that I call the Haitian Atlantic, which is really an intellectual history of Haiti from, from the 19th century to the early 20th century. And it's sort of resonance in the Atlantic world, the readership of Haitian authors from the U.S. and France and Britain and in Africa and in South America. And, you know, where did their works travel to? Sort of tracing the resonance of Haitian thought around, because I see so many, um, you know, parallels between, for example, someone like Baron de Vaté and Aimé Césaire and France Fanon and Jean-Paul Sartre. And, um, and so I'm just interested in sort of tracing influence that is either sort of organic or that is, in fact, we know that Césaire, for example, read Vaté. So um, just sort of looking at that. And again, I sort of call that sphere of influence the Haitian Atlantic. Well, sounds like you're really resting on your laurels then. <laughs> no, that sounds great. I'm looking forward to seeing all that. So, um, well, thanks so much for joining me. I really uh, appreciate you talking to me, and I really enjoyed the book quite a bit. Thank you so much for having me, and uh, I really enjoyed talking to you today. All right. Thanks a lot. Thank you.